The outline says there are the truth about sin. And we are looking at Mark chapter 3, verse 28 to verse 30. A woman in Adiwood uh, who worked as a financial advisor was sentenced uh, over the last month actually for stealing money from Greenfell survivors. Jane McDonald uh, stole 62,000 pounds. Uh, she spent it on beauty saloons, uh, expensive restaurants, uh, designer handbags, trips abroad to Iceland and, uh, and, uh, and all those nice places, Dubai, as it were. What is wrong with Jenny? What is wrong with her? A man in his 50s was stabbed in the chest on Wednesday uh, at an Erith industrial estate by Manor Road. Uh, he is still in serious condition. Uh, the police officers are still investigating this case. Uh, the area actually, I'm told, still, well, I read still, remains a crime scene. Uh, what has gone wrong with our neighborhood? I mean, why are those things happening in our neighborhood? A woman and a baby were hit by a car that was being rode, uh, that was being towed by another vehicle, right, at Danson Road last week. Uh, the car apparently uh, broke off from the instructor unit and ended up eating this woman and the baby. Thankfully, uh, no lives have been lost. But the crucial thing is that the driver did not stop at the scene. The police are still looking for the man. Uh, we think about that situation and we ask, who would do such a thing? Who, who would allow that thing to happen and then just drive off? Whether it is Abbeywood, whether it is, uh, uh, it is Erith, or it is just down the road there at Danson Park, uh, we recognize that there's something wrong, isn't there, with our area. And actually, it's not just our area. Uh, it is also the country we live in. And it's not just in the country we live in, it is also in the world. Uh, we see it on the news, uh, and we see it all around us. Uh, we see it on the news with the sexual harassment, uh, people being murdered in embassies, uh, terrorism, child abuse, sexual trafficking. The list of things we see in our world is just endless. And when we look at the world like that, I don't know about you, but there's this temptation, isn't there, to ask the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with them? We rarely pause to ask the other question, the right question. The right question we should be asking is, what is wrong with us? Because whether it is in our homes, whether it is in our churches, whether it is in where we work, we sense the same brokenness. It just manifests in different ways. We, 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 we ourselves are capable of lies, slander. There's, there are problems in our families we can't resolve. The issue is not what is wrong there. The issue is what is wrong here. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with our hearts? Why are we like this? All of us know that this is not how we should be. You see, the Bible says the problem with us is that we have inherited a spiritual disease. Uh, a spiritual disease for man says Adam and Eve. And when they rebelled against God, we inherited this disease. And this disease has infected us. And this disease is called sin. And we are not what we should be because we are sinners. 
Uh, we not only work with the word sinner tattooed on our foreheads, we are actually hostages of sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome in Romans 3 verse 9 to 12 uh, quotes the psalm. He says this in those verses, Romans 3, 9 to 12. He says this, what then? Are we Jews better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all both, all both Jews and Greeks, that is everyone really, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, no one. No one understands. No one seeks up for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Uh, not only are we in a spiritual prison as we saw, but we have just become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. A poor is saying, look, look, you are born in sin. You will die in sin. And your life is full of sin. He's saying your word, your thought, your deed, it is all sin. Whatever age or beliefs you have, you are a sinner, Paul says. We are all sinners. I think about that, I thought. It's uncomfortable to hear that, isn't it? When you take it in. It's uncomfortable because we live in a society that is not only anti-authority, but to be honest, all of us when we're growing up, even our kids, we encourage them to think they are good. You're a good kid. Oh, wonderful kid, isn't she? That's why that's how we are raised. We've been, we've been raised on affirmation, constantly being reminded we are good people. And we remind our children, we say, we are good, the evil is out there often. It's how we raise kids. So we live our lives thinking we are good. And it's hard then when we come in a fellowship like this to be told, no, you are a sinner. You are a complete wreck. You are a mess. It challenges the anti-authority streak that is in our society. We don't like for talking to us like that. We are all now free agents, as it were. But you see, this is why the Bible is different. The Bible isn't asking your opinion. The Bible isn't asking my opinion. The Bible simply says, we are all sinners. And why are we all sinners? Because the Bible does not compare us to other people. It compares you to the only person that matters. The most holy God. And so, the Bible says, you have been weighed on the divine scales. And you have been found wanting. The Bible says, you do not treat, neither do I, we do not treat God as he deserves to be treated. We have been weighed, friends, and we are found to be sinners. And the result of our sinful condition is that we are already cut off from God eternally. We are under everlasting punishment. Romans 2 verse 9 says this, there will be tribulation and distress for Every, listen to this, every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is our predicament. It is that we are all under judgment. Is there any hope for us in this? Is there any hope for our neighborhood? Is there hope for Erith? Is there hope for people who live in Dunson Park? Well, not inside the park, of course, but around there. Is there hope for Bexley? And the Bible says, yes, there is hope. Yes, there is hope. And the hope is in this passage. 
The hope is before us in Mark 28, Mark chapter 3, verse 28 to verse 30. And, this, and we saw that this morning, we, we looked at the verses before that. Remember, for those who are here this morning, we left Jesus in the middle of his response to the theologians who have come from Jerusalem. They are accusing Jesus of being the son of Satan. And we saw this morning that rather than punish them, rather than making them disappear, as we would if we had the power, uh, no, Jesus actually uses this opportunity to explain to them two important sections of truth. He first starts explaining to them the truth about Satan. We looked at that this morning. Verse 23 to verse 27 is taken up with that. And then now he wants to explain a truth that they haven't really touched on, but their behavior indicates that it's necessary to talk about it. And that is the truth about sin. And so this evening I just want to share two important truths that Jesus makes here about sin. They are very important for us because all of us are sinners. So we need to know this. The first truth is that all sins, it's a wonderful truth, the first truth is that all sins, all sins can be forgiven by God. All sins, not some, all sins. Jesus begins this statement in verse 28. Look at verse 28. It starts off mysteriously. You, you won't notice it, of course, in English. But it starts off mysterious. It says this, Truly I say to you. We should pause there because in the original language, the word truly actually it simply reads amen. So if we are translating this properly, actually, we should say, Amen, I said to you. Because amen really is the word that's there for truly, really. It's, it's amen. It's a strange way to begin. And it's only Jesus who does who begins like that in the ancient world. Nearly, nearly everyone else puts amen at the end. Actually, I hear... I, I often hear charismatics of, of course, not just charismatics, others recently, of course, beginning to speak in that way, starting off with amen. Why does Jesus always put amen at the beginning rather than at the end? Well, the reason he does that is because Jesus doesn't need affirmation. Okay, amen is affirming what's been heard. Let it be so. But Jesus doesn't need that. So he says, let it be so at the start. And of course, Jesus can say that at the start. He doesn't need affirmation because he is saying he's the true witness of God. Jesus is the amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. That's actually part of his title. He's the amen. So Jesus here starts off like that. He's, he's saying, look, what I'm about to tell you is nothing short of the very word of God. And I want you to pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. I'm speaking authoritatively. That's what Jesus is saying. And here is what Jesus, our God, is saying to us. Look at verse 28. Let's read on. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus is saying, basically, all sins will be forgiven. In other words, if you come to God and ask for forgiveness through Christ, God will forgive you your sins. Regardless of how vile you are, that man who did that at Danson Park can be forgiven by God. No matter how vile his sins are, God will forgive him if he repents. The man who stabbed that man in the chest at Eric can be forgiven by God if he comes before God and repents. 
Because we have it not only in Jesus' words, we have this truth also in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, to forgive someone is to give up the right to get even, isn't it? That's what forgiveness is. Uh, you are effectively showing them mercy for something they have done. Now, in our society, we are not very forgiving, actually, in our society. We don't, we don't, we don't like forgiving. Uh, to, be forgi- to forgive someone for something they've done to us, we have to be convinced that they end that forgiveness in some ways. And often even when somebody has done something terrible and they pass away, we never really forget. We still hold a grudge against them. It's very interesting... Um, over the summer, a burglar in, in uh, Heather Green, okay, somebody who used to burglar people quite a lot, you know, breaking people's homes, died. And he died in the process, actually, of stealing. And, of course, once he died, um, what do you do when somebody dies? You've got to bring flowers there, okay? Because somebody's died, something terrible. He used to be a burglar and he's dead, so you've got to show compassion, right? So the family organizes flowers to bring to this uh, to, to, to show where I died on the road, well, by the fence. And of course, people are very angry. Why are you putting flowers there for this dead man? Never mind, by the way, that this beggar, not justifying why he was stealing, but he was a bit hard up, and yeah, that lived a very difficult life. But as I thought about it, I thought, we live in a very unforgiving society. They couldn't even allow this dead beggar flowers. They hated his life so much. We're not very forgiving, but it's, that's not just that. Even when we forgive, it is often partial. What I mean by that is this. When we forgive someone and we generally forgive them, that person still has to be punished in some way if justice demands it. So if a person kills someone's husband, uh, the wife of the man murdered can forgive that person but the killer must still be jailed, right? He must go to jail for the terrible crime he's done. The wife could forgive the killer, but the law demands he goes to prison because justice still must be satisfied. That's human forgiveness. But you see, in the Bible, God does not just forgive your sin when you repent. He also keeps you out of the spiritual prison that you deserve. He's doing forgiving to us. He takes away the offense against him and he does something about your condition. He lifts you out of that pit of hell where you deserve and brings you into his family. He reconciles you to himself. In fact, it's more than that. It doesn't just reconcile you and make you a servant. It reconciles you and make you his child. You are forgiven, reconciled, adopted into God's family now. It's like, imagine it's like this. It's like the forgiven killer marrying the widow. Essentially. That woman whose husband was murdered doesn't just forgive that man. She goes on to, she keeps him out of jail and she marries him. That's what God does to a sinner. It's amazing, isn't it? I think it's, it's just... It just gets me excited when I think about that. It is sensational grace. 
And we will ask ourselves, how is it possible for God to do this? Well, it is possible because Jesus has come to die in our place. The blood of Jesus doesn't just wipe away our sins. It brings us into the family of God. Beloved, if you are trusting in Jesus this evening, be assured that whatever sin you have committed or will commit, you are already forgiven in Christ. I like what the prophet Micah says in Micah 7, verse 18 to 19. He says, it's a passage we should all know by heart. Who is like our God? Who is, or he says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because it, listen to this, because it delights in steadfast love. By the way, we could have a whole sermon on that. God delights in love. He will again, verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Someone asks, if a Christian kills another human being, are they still forgiven? Are they? They are. Because Moses, yes, admittedly he wasn't a Christian then, but he was still a child of God. And David murdered people. And God forgave them. How did God forgive them? Based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The future shed blood of Jesus Christ. What about suicide? If a Christian commits suicide, is that sin also covered by the blood of Jesus? Yes. If they were truly converted, they are in heaven now. And we rejoice when we see them. And what this tells us is that God forgives our sins, past, present, future. And maybe you, be, you once became angry with God. And in a rage of bitterness, you cursed God or you put out a bunch of expletives or, or even the F word or something like that. Or maybe in your moment of confusion, you angry declare that God does not exist. Because he has just hopelessly turned his back on you. Those sins are serious sins. And yet the Bible teaches us that if you are trusting in Jesus, you are clean before God, past, present, and future. The blood of Jesus doesn't just wipe away small sins. The blood of Jesus doesn't just wipe away, doesn't just get us in. It keeps us clean in God's family. Uh, do you have a sin that you have committed in the past that worries you? Do you have a sin you committed last week that worries you? Two weeks ago, do you sometimes think maybe God will change his mind about you? Do you doubt him? Do you find yourself always falling into sin? And you wonder, is God just not just gonna, one day just going to get tired of me? I mean, other people in my life have got tired of me, so why not God? Why wouldn't he get tired? I think if you're a true believer, you, have, you sometimes seriously question God's commitment because it happens. Because we know how pure and righteous God is and you wonder, Lord, how long are you going to keep up with me? 
Well, friends, if you're feeling like that, then imprint this truth on your mind. That verse is the God mind. Verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins can be forgiven by God. And if you are in Jesus, all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. This is the first truth we need to know about sin. God is bigger than our sin. That's the first truth, really, to summarize. And his love and forgiveness is bigger than our sin. Well, the second truth requires a bit more careful explanation for us to see it. The second truth is this. God only forgives repentant sinners. God only forgives repentant sinners. You see, when many people read verse 28, all sins will be forgiven, and then they read verse 29, their hearts become deflated. It's like, verse 29, come on. Verse 29 says this, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is, excuse me, guilt, guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, to read on, that he has an unclean spirit. When you read that verse first time, it seems like Jesus is making an exception here. And that's why this idea of the unpardonable sin has come in, wrongly named, as we will see. But people think Jesus now is making, saying, look, there are all these infinite sins except this one. He seems to be saying you're forgiven by God, but if you sin against the Holy Spirit, against the Spirit of God, then that's it. You're done. You're out. Sorry, see you later. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Let's, let's, let's think about this carefully. The first question we need to ask, actually, when we come to this passage is this. Why does Jesus involve God the Spirit in all of this at all? Does that, you should ask that question, because the, the, the issue seems to be about the Spirit of God. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. Why is Jesus going on about the Holy Spirit here? Uh, is Jesus, Jesus himself is God, of course, isn't it? So, so why is he talking about the third member of the Trinity? Surely an insult against Jesus is an insult against Jesus himself, who's God. It, it must be just as bad, right? Well, the reason Jesus is talking about the Spirit of God here, remember a big fundamental truth in Mark. Even though Jesus is fully God, He's doing his work as fully man. As a man empowered by the Spirit of God. It is important that you get your Christology right in Mark. You understand how Jesus is doing the miracles he's doing. Jesus is doing these miracles not relying on his divine privileges. But he's doing this miracle empowered by the Spirit of God. And so when the theologians come and accuse Jesus of doing, being, doing these miracles by the spirit of Satan, they are really not so much insulting Jesus, the man, they are insulting the spirit of God. They are saying the spirit of God, they, they, they are saying that Jesus is doing this by the spirit of Satan, not the spirit of God. Look at this study. That's why there's a qualifier there. For they were saying he has unclean spirit. They were saying he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's got an unclean spirit. 
They are calling the spirit of God the spirit of Satan. But this raises another interesting question, doesn't it? Lots of questions tonight. Why is this, this particular blasphemy here against the Holy Spirit so heinous? Why is saying that so grave? I mean, there are many ways you could sin against the Holy Spirit. But we, even when we resist him sometimes, we grieve him in many ways. But why is this particular way they are doing it heinous? Well, the reason is that, you see, they are not just calling the Holy Spirit Satan. They are doing it with full knowledge. They are doing it knowing full well it is the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus. Because you see, these theologians have seen Jesus heal the sick. They have watched the, the eyes of that, 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 they have seen the paralytic man raised. They have heard Jesus forgive the sins of the man. They have seen the leprosy suddenly disappear of the leper. Some of them have already seen Jesus raise the dead, if we understand the chronology a little bit. They have seen Jesus teach with power and authority. They have seen demons flee at the presence of Jesus, not just fleeing, they are declaring, you are the only one of God. They have heard all of that. And they know their Bibles. They could turn anywhere in Isaiah and verify for themselves that this is God at work. The Messiah has arrived. And they were already aware that John the Baptist has arrived fulfilling Malachi 3, has arrived fulfilling Isaiah 40. They know that. They know the Spirit of God has anointed Christ as the Messiah. Jesus is doing mighty works with heaven stamped on them. But they, these Jerusalem theologians see only the stamp of Satan. They can see the stamp of the Holy Spirit on this, but they are pretending it is a stamp from hell. They are purposefully deciding that Jesus is doing this by Satan. We might say these religious leaders have a chosen, persistent, lifelong rebellion and defiant attitude of unbelief that resists the gracious conviction of the Spirit of God. You see, their sin against the Holy Spirit is not a careless act committed only once in a moment of rage. It is a persistent defiance of God the Spirit himself. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. It is not mere rejection, but willful rejection, wicked rejection, wide-eyed rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when a person does that, when the truth is staring them in the face, and they know it is truth, and they walk away from that truth, they place themselves beyond Forgiveness. No, not because there is some defect in the serving work of Jesus. They are beyond forgiveness, not because there is a limit to God's grace and mercy. And not because of some other shortcoming in the character of God. They are beyond forgiveness because the person has placed herself beyond the realm of repentance. And if he or she repents, she'll be forgiven. 
We know if the, if the Pharisees repent, they can be forgiven. Why? Because that's why Jesus came. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15 says this. Now, John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee doing what? Proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God, and saying, The Kairos moment is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Forgiveness is available to them if they repent. But they can't repent. They have gone beyond repentance. And that brings us to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying there is a sin that cannot be forgiven. That is not what he means. Jesus is saying to enjoy the benefits of verse 28. To receive the forgiveness from sin, we must truly repent through him with the help of the Holy Spirit. God will only forgive repentant sinners. God only forgives people who cast themselves entirely at his mercy. And who take up the cross and follow Jesus. And anyone who truly repents before God should never worry that they are not forgiven. Because verse 28 says that God forgives all sins. Uh, To put it bluntly, no true follower of Jesus can ever sin against the Holy Spirit or blaspheme in this way suggested in verse 29. Because the very definition of a true follower is a repentant sinner. So you don't have to worry about that verse if you're truly in Christ. So what does this mean then for us? Is just an important point for us to note? Well, I think it has applications for all of us. The first question we must ask ourselves is this. Have I truly repented before God? Have I truly surrendered to Jesus? Am I leaning only on the blood of Jesus to save me from sin? Not my giving. Not my church attendance. Not my membership. Or anything like that. We must also ask ourselves, is there evidence in my life of a clear break from sin? Am I at war with sin? Do I have warm affections for Jesus? Do I love God? And do I love his family, the church? All these are evidences speaking of whether we've been truly challenged, converted. Because if the answer is no here, then you must truly repent now. Because if you keep hearing of Jesus like these Pharisees did, if you keep seeing the evidence of Christ, if Sunday after Sunday you hear, your heart may may harden, and you may place yourself well, possibly beyond the realm of repentance. Now, sometimes when I go on about Reminding people who have made a profession of faith that they must ensure they are truly trusting in Christ. It sounds like I have a, is it an English phrase? I hope it's not rude. Being a bonnet or something like that. Somebody suggested about being <laughs> said that. Uh, no, I don't. I'm suggesting, no, I'm looking at these verses and I'm seeing the danger of a hard heart. A danger of not coming to true surrender 
in Christ. The same sand that wets, that melts, also hardens. The same miracles that brought those disciples to a never-increasing faith in Christ hardened these theologians to the, to the point to which they cursed the Spirit of God and proved themselves beyond repentance. So we must ask ourselves, am I truly repentant? Am I being changed? Am I being transformed into the image of Christ? If you have truly surrendered and you are growing in trusting Him, then be confident that you stand forgiven before God. You can really mess up, but you are still standing in Christ. That is a wonderful thing. You are forgiven. You stand forgiven. And you should be thankful for that. Right? I think you should be thankful for that. You should be thankful because it has nothing to do with you. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're like me, you know you are a spiritual rebel. And you know there are many ways even now you're still rebelling against God in so many ways. But thank God you are God's rebel now. You are his. You're still rebelling, but you now belong to him. He has brought you into his family and is working on your heart, changing you every day from one degree of glory to the next. You are growing to become more like him. And you should thank God for this. And how do you express thanks to God? Well, is it by tolerating the same sins that we have been delivered from at such a high cost? Is that how we, we thank God? I mean, if your parents have done something wonderful for you, do you thank them by then staying a, a long night out again just to thank them? No, at least for them, for, you know, <laughs> they bought you a nice car or something. At least for the next three weeks, I think you'll be at home. Make, make, you make time for dinner and so forth. Well, in the same way, isn't it? God has done something wonderful. Do we thank him then by tolerating sin? Then we haven't understood anything, if that's the case. Do we thank God by putting our family, our jobs, our careers, our passions, our hobbies, our money, our friendship ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his precious blood for us? Is that how we thank him? Well, to borrow from my dear brother Michael, certainly not. Certainly not. We thank him by making Jesus the center of our lives. We thank God by continuously surrendering to Jesus in every year. By daily denying to ourselves. Because you see, there is no other way to live for those who belong to Jesus. We are born of God. We are the bride of Christ. And we are eagerly awaiting our husband. So, can I encourage you to resolve to, as I like to do, resolve to wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus. That I often mention. Make it a habit to go before the Lord to say, Lord, even before you ask the question, the answer to you is yes. That's obedience. Even before you ask the question, the answer to you is yes. Whatever you command, anywhere, anytime, my answer is yes. So please help me by your Holy Spirit. To live for you and not for myself. We have to do that, friends. That's not advice. 
That's what God commands us to do. Because you see, friends, if we are not able to tell Jesus that, if you can't get on your knees tonight when you get home and tell him that, but my answer to you, yes, anything you command, if you can't tell him that, then no matter what we think, we are still li- living dangerously. We're still in the realm of unbelief, like these religious leaders. And in that case, we need to ask God to change our hearts and give us a new birth so that we can be set free from that spiritual cage that Satan holds people in and from the sin that keeps us out from God's presence. We must come before him then to ask him to give us a new heart. Well, I pray that may not be true for any of us here. I pray all of us would come to truly surrender to Christ in that way. And may God help all of us to know the joy of having sins forgiven by God and to live repentant lives before our great King and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.